Start to Sale is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Smart Water. What makes Smart Water delicious? It's pure, it's crisp, it's vapor distilled with electrolytes added for taste. Learn more at drinksmartwater.com. Welcome to Start to Sale, the show that asks entrepreneurs questions like, oh my God, are we on an inevitable journey toward agony and death from global climate change? Ah! Well, great question, Erin. <laughs> I think today's guest might give you some hope. Today, we welcome Donnell Baird, founder and CEO of Block Power, which he started back in 2013. Through Block Power, Donnell and his team are building a platform to scale clean energy. He'll explain his model better than I can. But basically, the company works with groups of institutions housed in old buildings in underserved neighborhoods that are energy inefficient and expensive to power, crowdsources debt to fund efficiencies, creates jobs for people from those communities to do the work, and reduces greenhouse gas emissions in the process. We first heard about Donnell through a colleague over at Echoing Green, a social innovation fund that had named him a fellow. We both thought the work he was doing was so interesting, building a bridge between community, financiers, green energy, and job creation, and so big that we wanted to have him on the show. Plus, his work is close to Aaron's heart. Like Ovenly, Block Power measures its success not only by the revenues it generates, but the overall net positive effect it creates. I'm definitely inspired to implement this methodology at Cool House. In this episode, we'll get into what social impact means, how and why Donnell chose to get into the green energy business, but also what this means to his investors, which I found personally fascinating. Something that he said that really stood out was, Our performance um, has to be the same or better than other peer companies. And I think, you know, the, the thing that has been interesting to learn about block power is that in leading with the social and environmental performance on top of, you know, 200% year-over-year growth, like, that becomes a more attractive investment opportunity in some ways because, you know, investors get to have their cake and eat it too, right? Like, the environmental and social benefits aren't, like, some side uh, project of their firm over at Andreessen Horowitz or over at Kapor Capital. It's kind of core to what they believe the future um, is going to look like in core to you know their profitability. So Aaron, how do you connect impact with profitability? Do you find yourself having to do a lot of convincing? Um, that's a really great question. But super quickly, so listeners understand what we're up to at Ovenly, we have two big initiatives. Um, one is creating good jobs and the other is reducing environmental impact. On the job side, we've implemented what's called open hiring practices. So basically, that means that you can come to my company and for an entry-level position, you don't need a resume um, and you just need a really good recommendation. So we have these job partners that we work with that train people and then we hire those people. Uh, what that also means is that a bunch of our staff come from you know environments in which maybe they've been denied economic opportunities. So about 30% of our staff, for example, are um, formerly incarcerated young folks. So in terms of how we talk about it, you know, there's some people who have immediate buy-in. All we have to say is we have these open hiring practices, we're reducing waste, and that's it. They're done. But there is a whole other group of more traditional capitalists and people who just aren't used to this model that do need to get convinced. Um, we try to show that 
while we're trying to sell as many cookies as we possibly can and stay best in class, you know, my bakery has been voted the best in New York. We've gotten all sorts of accolades. We are also doing this other work that is impossible to separate from the actual company. My feelings around it are like this, you know, building an impact company is sort of like being a woman in business, right? You have to work doubly hard and be 50% better to convince those people who are dubious so that you can prove that what you're doing is worth it and that they will be so inspired by what you do that they want to do it too. I mean, that's ultimately the thing, right? We want to inspire other entrepreneurs and inspire investors to come into the company, invest, make companies like this, fund companies like this, because ultimately we want to create a more positive cycle of business and entrepreneurship. You know, there are a lot of doubters out there, though. So we do have to describe impact in terms of competitive advantages. And I would say we go into a lot of meetings and we say, you know, we do this work. We have these open hiring practices. But just so you know, let's look at the cost savings on the environmental impact side. We use all renewable energies. We use energy efficient equipment, et cetera. We can show the money on that side. On the other side, we can compare our turnover on staff to other local companies that we've talked to. We can get some data on that. We have less turnover. You know, labor is always an issue in New York City. We have the advantage that we have these amazing job partners. And every time there's an opening, we can turn to them and say, hey, is there someone that you've been working with that could be a great employee? And then we usually hire from there. We've really haven't put up a Craigslist ad for our manufacturing side of our business for quite some time. And it's such an advantage because we are able to not spend that time recruiting talent. You know, we we have an internal way of finding it. So I think that's the big thing for those more traditional capitalists out there is just showing that the impact is a huge, important piece of the business. And, and you know, I have to say some of the convincing tool is, is and we talk about this a little bit with Danell, um, there is some fear. You know, there are people who are not used to companies employing people who may come from different backgrounds. And you have to show why it makes sense. You have to put your values first. You have to put your vision first. And you start there. And that's how you start the conversation. So I think that's really, I really connected with what Danelle said. Um, I think what he's doing is amazing. And what really inspired me about what he is creating is that the picture is so big. And that the value proposition is not just what he's doing, but the impact that he's creating. And it is so awesome. And I can't wait for our listeners to get into it. Yeah. And I think, you know, What's really cool about what you're saying is it's all about creating the new norm, right? I mean, I think I think if you look back um, at some things that are trends in business, you know, thinking about like the cool house and the way we're sourcing and the standards that we're using and the diversity that's coming in the workplace, like you mentioned, being, you know, women founded and led businesses as both of us are. Those are things that you might have had to see in a way as an initiative, you know, 10 years ago. And now as more businesses come together and do them. It's totally about this is the standard. Um, and I think it's so amazing to be pioneering and to be, you know, someone setting those standards as you are and as Donnell is. Um, so, yeah, let's let's get into hearing more of those details from Donnell about how he's done what he's done. I'm Donnell Baird, the CEO and founder of Block Power. Block Power is building a platform focused on helping buildings to become greener, healthier and smarter in America's urban core. And we we do that by offering green buildings as a service 
to utilities and governments. Amazing. So kind of breaking it down a little further, um, you're actually our only social entrepreneur um, this whole season. And it's quite a different model than, you know, make a business, start a business, sell something, sell the business, because you're a public benefit corporation. Can you break down public benefit corporation for our audience? Sure. So a public benefits corporation is similar to a Delaware C corporation, like C as in cat. It's the basic kind of corporation that Silicon Valley is used to investing in. Um, We're a public benefits corporation, which means that in our founding kind of corporate charter documents, we clearly state that we, as management of the company, intend to pursue um, energy efficiency, renewable energy, greenhouse gas reductions, as well as economic development and job creation in low-income communities. And in addition to our fiduciary obligation to produce financial returns, we are able and clearly state that we're going to produce all of those social and environmental benefits as a core part of our operations. And so I, as a manager, cannot be sued by one of our investors, for example, if um, I choose to uh, install a solar power plant system in a building versus a natural gas system, if it's less profitable uh, to my company and to that investor. Wow. Because we clearly outline that in our operating documents. So interesting. So then how does Black Power generate revenues? By connecting uh, building owners on one side who own um, mid-sized buildings throughout the country, you know, mostly in New York City and the surrounding region. Um, they hire us to help them green their building and to upgrade their equipment. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, um, as we complete projects, city governments and utility companies um, pay us for the completion of projects. And so city governments have greenhouse gas reduction or renewable energy goals um, that are part of their city policy. And utility companies have electricity grids and gas uh, grids and pipes that they have to manage and maintain. As part of that, they have to manage you know, energy consumption throughout their electricity and utility grid. Um, by greening buildings, we, we can provide information and uh, what's called peak demand reduction for utility companies. So, so building owners pay us to help them green their buildings. And once the projects are complete, we also get paid by the utility companies and by the local governments. It's it's so like profound to think how much impact you can make with business, and I know a lot of our listeners will be inspired and you know want to uh, explore that as well. And um, what I've heard from you is that you're thinking really, really big with this. I mean, you've you've grown. Maybe you could tell us about the growth and thinking about making this a billion dollar company. Yeah, absolutely. You know, given the climate crisis, given the state of economic inequality throughout the country. Um, we are really focused on growing our business really, really quickly so that it could become a really massive business, a billion-dollar business. Um, and so you know, we've managed to grow at an average annual growth rate of 200% year over year in terms of our top-line revenue. Um, so from a standing start in 2013, we've managed to kind of double our revenue each year for the last few years, and we're super excited about that. And our ability to kind of have the profile of any other, you know, fast-growing startup that has the potential to really scale up and become a really big business. I, I love thinking big and and taking it all the way. But like maybe it could be interesting to to kind of explain 
what it would mean to really get there and and like how you see that path. Um, you know, and also would that define success for you getting two billion dollars or is it like a is the success defined by what that billion dollars would mean in terms of the impact you made? Wow, that's a re- that's a really good question. I think that the core premise of the business is what do we need to do to create you know a ton of jobs in American inner cities with a living wage and healthcare, and what do we need to do in order to maximize greenhouse gas reductions from all of these kind of old, poorly maintained buildings in American inner cities? And there's five million of them, and so if we reach a million of those buildings. Um, with our software, we will be a billion-dollar business by valuation. We'll be bringing in about you know fifty to one hundred million dollars per year um, by serving that first million buildings. And so, what does it mean to go into you know Detroit and Philly and the Bronx and Oakland and LA and reach that first million buildings so that we can um, help to analyze and optimize and upgrade those buildings with our tech platform? Um, and that those building owners and relevant city governments and utility companies are paying us to provide that service. And so, you know, if we reach those first million buildings, it'll be 50 to $100 million a year of revenue, and that'll give us a billion-dollar valuation. And that, we hope, will give us a lot of leverage to create maximum, maximum impact um, in terms of greenhouse gas reduction. How are you measuring the greenhouse gas reduction that you are helping to create through your company? You know, are you measuring your job creation? What are the other aspects of your business that you are measuring that maybe a typical company only focused on revenue is not? Sure. We we really focus on, um, um, we use the projections from the U.S. federal government and from different state governments and city governments to kind of come up with a standardized measurement of you know, tons of avoided greenhouse gas emissions from our projects. And so there's a set of protocols um, recommended by the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level. Uh, The city of New York, the mayor's office of sustainability has their own framework. And we've combined both of those frameworks to think about um, in every building the, the kind of energy consumption prior to our green energy upgrade what is that prior energy consumption of fossil fuels? And what is the resulting greenhouse gas emissions? And when we reduce that uh, energy consumption through our retrofit, what is the delta? What is the you know, avoided amount of greenhouse gas emissions from that particular building? And so in aggregate, as we operate and go building to building and green each building, uh, we're reducing um, the greenhouse gas output, which we uh, predict and measure and project according to a set of protocols from the federal government and local governments. So greenhouse gas reduction is a really, really important um, metric. Um, uh, second, we measure the the pounds of reduced particulate matter, um, particularly in urban environments and low-income communities like the Bronx here in New York. Um, the Bronx has the highest asthma rates in the country, and that's because there's a ton of particulate matter Um, that's circulating outside the buildings and inside the buildings. Los Angeles has really high asthma rates as well for the same reason, because of the traffic and the emissions. Um, So as we green buildings, we're also reducing particulate matter, which which has a correlation with a reduction in asthma attacks and a huge public health impact and public health savings. And so we, we, we measure the greenhouse gas reduction, we measure the reduction in particulate matter. We also measure the the energy saved per building in terms of the the sheer like cash cost savings of a reduced energy building to that 
low-income building owner in an urban community. And then last, we, we, we keep track of the amount of jobs that we create uh, for low- and moderate-income people, um, you know, people who are ex-offenders, people who have aged out of foster care, or otherwise come from vulnerable populations um, that may not have um, a ladder into the working class or the middle class. And so we try to keep track of, you know, the green construction jobs. Um, we hire people at our company who come from vulnerable populations. And so we, we track all of that. I'm also a social entrepreneur. Ovenly hires formerly incarcerated young people. People are coming out of um, at-risk environments. Large number of our staff are coming from working poor or have had big gaps in their resumes. You know, everything you're saying, this oftentimes referred to as a triple bottom line. You're looking at finances and job creation and uh, environmental impact. All of this really, to me, is a social enterprise. But offline, we were talking about how you kind of have moved away from using that nomenclature. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, because I think that this is um, for people who are working in the social enterprise field. It is a question um, that we have is like, how do we talk about ourselves without seeming like we're a Tom's where we're like giving away a pair of shoes, every pair of shoes we sell like this. This is big business. This is real business. But also we are doing X, Y, Z. So I would love to hear about your opinion on on that sort of um, challenge for companies that are not only focused on revenue, but also have other goals in mind. It's a complicated topic. I'm going to try not to babble too much. That's fine. We love You're babbling. Babble. Yeah, what? I mean, I enrolled in Columbia Business School for the express explicit purpose of studying at the social enterprise program at Columbia Business School. We have one of the best social enterprise programs in the country. Um, a family from Florida called the Tamers recently endowed the program, and so it has its own endowment that throws off cash, and they provide social enterprise summer fellowships and you know loan forgiveness. That you know the reason I could start my business is because Columbia Business School waived like a hundred thousand dollars of my student loans so that I could like launch my social enterprise. And so I, I explicitly had the vision of becoming a social entrepreneur to reduce greenhouse gas and impact the uh, climate conversation and to create jobs in the communities that I care about and that I come from. And what I've, you know, when we started the business, we had to raise capital relatively quickly. We didn't have a business that you could kind of bootstrap. And so I spoke to 200 impact investors, um, investors who define themselves as looking for opportunities to invest in social and or environmental businesses. Um, and, and, And those conversations were really confusing because the truth of the matter is, even the very best impact investors, and, I, and I'm privileged to have one or two of them you know, as investors in our company, the thing that they focus on is financial returns, first and foremost. So if you don't have the revenue growth and you don't have the financial returns, you know, you're not even going to have the opportunity to create impact um, because you're never going to get the business off the ground. And so I think to any aspiring social entrepreneur, I would say that the focus on revenue as the priority in your triple bottom line, that clarity um, will help you in terms of your conversation with any investor, and it will certainly help you run your business. And then you know, hopefully you're running a business where if you operate well and you continue to grow as a core part of your operations, you're doing things that are awesome for the environment. You're doing things that are awesome for your local community. Um, you're helping people. Same exact experience. We um, went out to raise money a few years ago and we talked to a number of impact investors. We had the same experience. It was so confusing. They wanted to see very specific financial metrics, but they didn't ask us for our impact metrics, which we keep. And we actually had much more success with typical investors who thought what we were doing was so cool 
that it provided them with a new way of investing for themselves. Um, so that is a really interesting point. Is there is a rising class of impact investors, and obviously there there's a lot of great ones out there, but they seem to only be focusing on the traditional measurements of success, which are gross revenues and gross profits, and that's it. Um, maybe that is because they're such a new class of investor. Fascinating. It is. It's so. It's very strange to me. It shouldn't be that one exists without the other at all. Yeah. You know, it should be totally intertwined. And and you know, businesses uh, are showing more and more that it can be. Yeah. Exactly. Just really quickly, because we didn't touch on it, why did you decide to go this route? Ah, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of um, President Obama. I was an early staffer on his campaign. I was trained as a community organizer by one of his mentors, was my mentor. And so I'm going to say all that as a caveat. But the portion of the stimulus plan that I worked on, which was for energy efficiency and for green buildings um, in financially underserved communities, we invested about $7 billion dollars. And it didn't really work, to, to be honest. Um, I mean, at the time, we were trying to retrain and rehire the construction workers who'd been laid off during the 2008-2009 financial collapse, right? Um, because real estate was down and the construction industry wasn't hiring, people weren't working. And so we wanted to retrain and rehire all of these folks in the green buildings industry as green construction workers. And so we invested a ton of money in doing that. But we weren't able to get the, the kind of project to become a financially self-sustaining industry uh, where Wall Street and venture capital uh, felt good about putting money into the industry and the industry would like continue beyond that initial stimulus investment. So basically what happened is you know, we invest the, the $7 billion and though we created a lot of great infrastructure for the industry and lots of people like me learned awesome lessons about what it would take to move forward, we kind of from that initial capital weren't able to create an industry that created you know a million jobs right um, you know maybe we created a hundred thousand jobs or something like that so so for me I just saw this huge opportunity because energy efficiency and clean energy and in uh, in underserved buildings is such a critical part of any path that we take to addressing climate change at scale we must we must green the buildings. Um, buildings represent about 30% of U.S. greenhouse gases, according to some accounts. And so we have to figure out how to, how to reach these hard-to-green buildings and, you know, quote-unquote, financially underserved communities. And, and so it just seemed like a huge opportunity to create a ton of jobs, to help create a new industry, um, and as an African-American to really, um, through the green energy industry, to really kind of confront the historical legacy of you know racism and discrimination and all that by by really getting in on the ground floor of a new green energy industry how how could we um, you know green buildings in our own communities and create jobs and wealth um, and and really bring some economic stability um, to our communities so you're serving underserved communities you're you're gonna make this a billion dollar business and you're gonna save the planet um, just a, just a little bit on your plate there. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to ask something, actually. I'm glad that you elaborated on your background in government, because I was wondering when you're talking about getting these government projections to really base a lot of elements of your business on, I was thinking, God, so many entrepreneurs hear government and they run the other way, but you're like a fireman running into the fire. But it's contextually, you have you have connections or you have experience. So has that made a major difference in you being able to really, you know, access these numbers, get the right numbers, get them in uh, efficient amount of times? I mean, it seems like there would be a lot of challenges with bureaucracy and red tape. So maybe you can enlighten us on that a bit, too. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I won't I won't I won't pretend that working with the government even for someone um who has a little bit of experience with it uh it has its challenges, right? In terms of bureaucracy, in terms of speed, any early stage startup that wants to work with any government, the government is going to perceive that as a risk, right? Because the government wants to ensure like timely, low-cost, efficient delivery of whatever product or service is purchasing. And a startup, by definition, is like a highly risky, like innovative, like non-safe um, partner. And so there, there's some like structural impediments between startups uh, working with governments. And I and I and I do think bluntly that the experience that I had, um, you know, working, consulting with the Obama administration, going state to state, learning about local governments and, you know, what they cared about and how they operated and what are their priorities and considerations has been an advantage for our company in finding ways, you know, as a new startup to like partner with local governments in a way that like makes sense for them. And so, uh, you know, Look, it's difficult, but I think it's important because, again, if you if you start from a goal of like, how do we reduce U.S. greenhouse gases by two to seven percent in the next five years? Government has to be a partner. You also have to have Wall Street. You also have to have Silicon Valley. But but government has to be a partner um, to operate at that scale. Yay, government. <laughs> I mean, you know, cryptocurrency. All of those startups are trying to think through what happens in terms of their relationship with the Securities and Exchange Commission and what the new regulation is going to be, right? So, you know, when, when you're building up a new industry or in a successful startup, you're always going to start to run into government, right? Like Uber's running into government, Airbnb's running into government. So whether it's sooner, whether it's later, how can you be thoughtful about creating a productive relationship with your partners in the government? Yeah, Totally. I think some people also, you know, for our listeners out there who are interested in social enterprise and entrepreneurship and public benefit corporations, et cetera, et cetera, you know, I think one of the things that I'm also curious about is why this route and why not the nonprofit route? I have very strong opinions on this myself, but, you know, you are choosing to be a for-profit in this sort of area. I'm curious, one, why why you decided to go that route, and two, what do you see as the biggest benefit of going that route for you? Mm-hmm. That That is a hard question. Okay, so there's this like Greek myth. I'm going to go wide here with this answer. I hope it's okay. Oh, I, lo- I love, we love wide and we love metaphors. <laughs> we love Greek myths. We will be grading you we, on your answer yeah. at the end of this <laughs> okay. podcast though. So and Prometh- your Greek pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> so Prometheus was a titan, right? Like he was one of the Greek gods and he he did something. He like stole fire and gave it to man and, you know, pissed off Zeus or whatever. So so the rest of the gods like chained him to this rock and then every day this eagle would fly down and eat his liver and then his liver would grow back. And then the next day, the eagle would come and eat his liver again. Woo, we're backing way out. I told you I was out. going wide. <laughs> and, and, and so, so every day, his liver's growing back and getting eaten by this eagle. And, and that is what it felt like for me to go to business school. I mean, it was just horrible. I just hated everything about business school and the other kids in the school and everything was about money. And I just I like didn't understand who these people were and what motivated them and drove them. And like it was it was just it was it was awful. I think on Um, future business school applications, they're going to be checking on people's liver, (laughs) (laughs) the health of their liver. Okay, you're good to go. This is like a great advertisement for Columbia (laughs) Business School. I hope they're not listening. But um, and in particular, like corporate finance and how you like finance corporate growth and do all this and that and Wall Street and buy and sell stuff. That was really tough. But 
um, over time, right, like learning the, the, the system of how organizations and companies like grow and scale and become really huge and have like an outsized influence over our life and over society and over our politics, the question becomes like, what if you could build an Uber for green energy, right? Like, what does that look like? Well, what if you could build a Google for green energy, right? Like a really huge, powerful, important company that has a huge impact in our society and really was um, helping to, to move its customers and stakeholders towards the kind of green energy future that we need. Because in terms of the fight that we have to fight for climate change, there's advocacy. And, and I did that. I was partnered with the Sierra Club and labor unions, and I'm on the board of the Sierra Club. And advocacy has its place, and it's incredibly important. At the same time, we have to restructure our economy um, so that it's more sustainable, right? And, and, and so that we like waste less carbon. And so at business school, once I like kind of survived my initial, you know, shell shock, um, I learned about the startup world and that in the startup world, there's a place for people who want to come in and disrupt, you know, the fossil fuel companies and the oil companies and replace them with solar or green energy. Um, you know, it's called a startup. And that's the kind of organization that you build that can be uh, violently disruptive to incumbents. And so whether those incumbents are the taxi cab industry or the hotel industry or the fossil fuel industry, like you as a startup can come in and disrupt them. Um, and I think that that has a different kind of energy and momentum and speed and scale uh, than a nonprofit. You know, in the foundation world, people like to give grants, 100 grand, you know, maybe 500 grand. Um but as a for-profit startup, you know, you can raise $500 million, right, as long as your numbers are there to really grow. So, so the speed of a startup and its ability to scale to address what I think is an imminent climate crisis was really what appealed to me. Um, I really wanted to, to have the benefit of that speed. Yeah, and I can see there's something really about leading with that impact and then the big business that follows. Because, of course, when some of these businesses become huge, then they may say, we're creating an initiative or here's something positive we can do. But you're kind of turning that around and, and leading with it is just such a it's such a exciting and kind of different way of going about it, but can be equally huge, mm-hmm. which leads me to something else you want to talk to you about was the fundraising side of things. Yeah. So, you know, we, we know you've got some very big backers behind Block Power. And maybe you can, you know, share with us who they are and also how has then raising that money impacted what you're doing? You know, what specifically about the vision have they brought to the table? Great question. Um, that's a great question. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to answer in two parts. The second part, I'm not sure I'm going to say, but, um, you know, we are fortunate to partner with Andreessen Horowitz um, and Kapor Capital. Um, as well as the Eric and Wendy Schmidt uh, Family Foundation. Um, we have great investors at Urban.us and, um, you know, a small group of impact investors from Investors Circle. Um, so, th- so those are our core investors. And, you know, we're, we're, we're raising a little bit of capital before the end of the year, so we'll have some new investors um, over the next six weeks. Um, you know, Mitch Kapoor is famous for being one of the most, you know, he's a Silicon Valley legend because he, like, helped to invent a spreadsheet application on Apple II called Lotus that was incredibly powerful and really helped to introduce the spreadsheet to the business world. 
and um, was an early investor in Uber and lots of other awesome companies. And Ben Horowitz at Andreessen Horowitz um, helped to, you know, he worked at Netscape with Mark Andreessen to invent the internet browser, and then they invented like cloud computing, and then they were early investors in Facebook and Twitter and Airbnb and Lyft. Um, and so, you know, just they're real visionaries in, in, in tech. And, um, you know, like I shared, I was basically a community organizer and then a political organizer. And then I got my MBA, which is, you know, not something that Silicon Valley loves. They don't really admire MBAs out there. And so for me, I really had um, the chance to kind of learn from these preeminent folks about technology and the kind of disruptive impact that technology could have in the business world and in the economy. Um, they've done it before um, through the internet browser and cloud computing and through Uber and through the spreadsheet. And so the question is, how can block power harness you know, that technological disruption on behalf of social and environmental impact, right? Like that's the core question. And so for us, having the opportunity to partner with people who've done it before, who've built huge, huge, huge businesses that have driven massive technological shifts it's been really great just in terms of mentorship, um, learning about tech, learning about business, learning about management, and all of the uh, things that we'll need to really grow and, and build a huge, huge business. So I think that's the, the primary um, benefit um, that we've gotten from um, having the, the awesome opportunity to partner with these folks. Do they have different expectations of the financial performance of the business because you are taking on so much else? Like, do they measure success differently with you? Absolutely not. Our performance um, has to be the same or better than other peer companies. And I think, you know, the, the thing that has been interesting to learn about block power is that in leading with the social and environmental performance on top of, you know, 200% year-over-year growth, like, that becomes a more attractive investment opportunity in some ways because, you know, investors get to have their cake and eat it too, right? Like, the environmental and social benefits aren't like some side uh, project of their firm over at Andreessen Horowitz or over at Kapor Capital. It's kind of core to what they believe the future um, is going to look like and core to, you know, their profitability. And so, um, we, you know, we at Block Power as management think that we're going to have outsized profits and outsized financial performance relative to our peers. Um, and so if there's any different kind of expectation, it's actually that we would have a higher financial performance than other folks um, because we're trying to leverage a, a really large and important trend in a really large and important market. I was trying to think of the analogy for have your cake and eat it too. And I'm thinking maybe have your energy and use it too is what you guys should use over there. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> you can take that. <laughs> we give that to you. Part of your company that I find fascinating, but I don't, I can't fully articulate because I am not a tech person, are these tools that you've created uh, to do the work that you've done. You know, I know that you are figuring out how to create more energy efficient buildings through apps. You have some um, financing tools that are online. Can you tell us a little bit about those? technology-driven tools? And also, 
are those tools in and of themselves other way to generate income, either through IP yeah, or absolutely. whatever else? We've really focused on trying to leverage, you know, cutting edge technology that we that we learn about through, you know, our partners in Silicon Valley and um, hiring, you know, developers and, so, you know, software engineers who who understand the latest tech breakthroughs. And so, you know, one of one of the innovations that we focus on is machine learning. Um, another is the Internet of Things. Um, and the third is, you know, we built a finance application that creates uh, basically the equivalent of a green mortgage bond. Um, and we developed that uh, in conversations with, you know, partners on Wall Street, uh, Goldman Sachs, and um, some early conversation at Barclays Bank. Um, the Internet of Things is the concept that um, the cost of computation and, you know, microchips and Internet connectivity is continuing to collapse. And so you can connect uh, more and more devices, whether uh, in our business it's thermostats or heating system management devices or solar panel monitoring systems or air quality sensors or temperature sensors. All of these like devices at very low cost can collect a ton of data and stream that data over the internet. And the, the cost of doing that has just collapsed dramatically. And so you can like go to Home Depot or order some sensors on Amazon that will stream like real-time data to your you know, tech platform. So that's one. Um, machine learning is the, the idea that you can train a computer to recognize patterns um, across like really large data sets. And how we use those two technologies is that we are able to connect to internet-connected devices in buildings or to install low-cost sensors that stream data over the internet to our platform so that we can analyze the building's energy consumption or energy waste. That's A. And then B, the way that we analyze each building's energy consumption or energy waste is by using machine learning where we're making our kind of you know, computer program kind of smarter and smarter about the patterns and types and categories and kinds of energy efficiency waste that we are encountering on a building-by-building basis. And so basically, our computer program goes, up. Oh, we got some new data you know, from this new building project in the Bronx. It actually looks pretty similar to a building project that we just completed in Brooklyn or in Philadelphia. Therefore, we're going to recommend a similar solution to what we believe is a similar problem in that building. And so by utilizing these technologies, we're able to collapse the cost. Um, and by developing our finance application, we're able to allow Wall Street uh, investors to invest in, in greening buildings and inner cities according to the recommendations that our machine learning and Internet of Things um, technology recommends. So cool. Wow. Start to Sale is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Smartwater. So we both run businesses. We manage the day-to-day, and now we host a podcast. We're working hard, and so does smart water. It's vapor distilled for purity with electrolytes for taste. It's water that helps keep us hydrated as we work hard. And look, you work hard, and you deserve a great-tasting, hydrating water. Learn more at drinksmartwater.com. Who do you employ at Block Power? We employ a ton of people. Um, software engineers, um, one or two PhDs in you know some technical stuff, electrical engineering, uh, physics, computer science. Um, there's a couple folks that have master's degrees um, in electrical and mechanical engineering. 
Um, there are folks on our business development and outreach team um, who come from underserved communities. Um, we've, I think, all in, we've probably employed like 90 people over the last four years at Block Power in terms of full-time employees. And um, uh, 95% of those people are women or people of color. So that's where we start. Um, but second, you know, there's a mix of people with a high degree of technical capacity um, in engineering and computer science. And then there's a mix of people who do really thoughtful, uh, structured community outreach and engagement. Um, we've hired people from vulnerable populations who grew up in public housing in low-income communities in New York. Um, um, there is a differently abled person on our team um, who, who we're really excited to employ and who's you know really darn good at his job. Um, and so from our perspective, we hire the best of the best, and that turns out to be you know really talented women and people of color. So awesome. And there's a big job training component of it, right, in terms of the actual servicing. Yes. We, we force the construction companies who actually, you know, we don't, nobody on our staff like really knows how to hammer a nail. <laughs> well, there's one guy who does. What he does is he manages other construction companies who we hire to actually install the new heating system or pipes or lighting system. And so there's local construction companies that we employ. Um, and as a condition of their employment on our projects, we require them to, um, to hire local uh, folks from um, disadvantaged populations as a part of their work crew. Um, and so on a contract we have with the city of New York, um, as a condition of working on that contract with us, construction companies had to A, be trained by some of the manufacturers of the really awesome green tech equipment that they're installing, but B, um, they had to, to hire locally from hard to employ populations in Brooklyn. And, you know, we're really proud of that. You have a lot to be proud of, Dono. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you. Yeah, no, seriously. Um, thank you for doing all the good you do. So, you know, when you're going in, you're getting these contracts to uh, improve the environmental quality of a building, let's say, and you're mandating certain backgrounds, certain profiles to be part of these projects. Um, were you or were you not getting pushback? And either way, how is it surprising? Because if you're not getting pushback, why aren't more people doing this? There's a ton of pushback. You know, the, con the construction industry as a whole is not like a, not like a post-racial utopia. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's like a tough industry on gender, on race, even for people who have college degrees, right? And so then when you talk about bringing in folks from, you know, new potential employees who are returning citizens, they're ex-offenders, you have people who didn't go to college because they came up in the foster care system and just haven't had a ton of opportunities. Um, you know, it, it is a source of tension with many contractors who, who aren't interested in running their business that way, right? Like they don't feel like they got in, into the construction business to run a social program. You know, they got into it to make money. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who um, are very concerned about some of these policies. I mean, I remember back in 2010 um, when I was working, you know, consulting with the Obama administration, and we were pushing this policy in the state of New York, um, here where I, where I live. And you know, I remember attending a hearing at the at the you know at the state government and. There was a contractor, um, a young woman, who stood up and said, well, I just don't understand why we would send ex-offenders to the homes of people 
where, you know, mothers may be home taking care of their young children. And now we're sending this ex-offender over there to to do a green retrofit of that house. Like from a safety standpoint, um, how, how do we do that? And, um, you know, you don't want to be reflexively dismissive of these kinds of concerns. These are real considerations, right? I think that on our end, the obligation has to be like, look, we are going to work with the best job training programs in New York City and across the state. We are going to force everybody to take a really, really rigorous test. Um, All of the graduates are going to have to pass the test. They're going to have to pass the test with flying colors. They're going to have to be better at their job than, than some other person who doesn't have a criminal record that's coming in off the street. Like Our ex-offender is going to have to be better at the job, and that employer is going to have to you know, feel really great after the first two months of working with our ex-offender that this person is like overperforming and outperforming anybody else that they could have hired for this job. And like that has to be the reason for the continued employment. And so as block power on our end or as anybody who's implementing a similar policy, like, you know, we have the obligation to go out and make sure that if, if we believe that talent and genius is evenly distributed throughout the human population, Right. And we believe that there's groups of people who, through lack of opportunity, have not had the chance to exercise their genius and their talent that's inherent in them. And all we're trying to do is to give those people a shot. Then those people have to be smart enough and disciplined enough to, to show up to work on time, to outperform their competitors and to put their talent and their genius to work. That is how we see it. And so, um, you know, we also don't view ourselves as a social program, but what we want to do is to give the people who are talented geniuses who have not had an opportunity, we're going to give them an opportunity. And, and, and that's kind of how we look at it. And um, if we do a good job of kind of on, on the implementation side of that, um, I think what we found is that construction companies who hired our people, even after our contracts are over, they keep our people, right? Because our people are great, productive profitable employees for those um, construction companies. So I hate to be you know, so hard-nosed capitalist about it, but um, that, I think, is where we start. And I think as the, the boss at the construction company learns about the ex-offender and vice versa, that creates a new opportunity and a new context to really um, start to do different special things and kind of move our society in a different direction. Have you seen that any of the people that you've contracted with on the construction side have seen the success of working with people who've been denied opportunities in the past and have gone on to create deeper partnerships with job training organizations post their work with Block Power? 100%. And I'd be super interested in whether you see that in your work, right? Because there's all these advantages. I mean, if you're giving somebody a shot who doesn't have a shot, they show up to work early, they work hard, they're really thankful and grateful for the opportunity, they want to make the most of it. And so in some ways, they're, they're just so much more motivated um, and passionate about the job opportunity that they have, that we have seen construction companies say, you know what, I'm going to go out and figure out how to, how to develop a pipeline of, of more of these workers because they're willing to work twice as hard and twice as fast and twice as smart. Um, and it's a great source, particularly for certain kinds of work. Um, we, we have seen that. And um, that is really exciting to me. You know, one of the big things that we found, too, is that as soon as we can conquer someone's fear of this term formerly incarcerated or ex-offending or whatever it is, they get over it pretty quickly. And so one of the things that we've been able to do in our end is we're part of a group of a bunch of uh, 
bakery, ice cream, candy maker entrepreneurs. And we have encouraged those people to partner with our job partners because the reality is across the country, there's a labor shortage. You know, the partnership, if you want to look at it from just a capitalistic perspective, if you're having a problem finding laborers and people to do your work, you should be looking at social service agencies because it is a great way to find people to fill positions that are hard to fill. That's right. Um, So that's just one of my that's right. One of my comments on that. Is there an exit for this business? There, there definitely is. Interestingly enough, I learned about a new one over the weekend, which is um, because we are going door to door in America's urban core, we have largely focused on the utility companies that need to deploy smart grid and smart equipment at scale as a potential acquirer. Um, there are banks or investment banks whose uh, clients, whose high net worth clients, you know, want three percent or five percent or ten percent of their assets in an impact product. And so, you know, if you think about, you know, Goldman Sachs Wealth Management Group, and there's a lot of millennials who are inheriting wealth from their parents, and they they want to put some of that money to work on building a better society and a better planet. And so a bank that's looking to deploy capital uh, to create social and environmental impact in an inner city could be an exit opportunity. But the new one that we learned about recently is, you know, somebody like Uber, somebody like Lyft, um, who needs to install distributed, or Tesla, right, who needs to install distributed electric vehicle charging stations throughout urban environments. Since we're going door to door to install lots of cool new green technology, uh, that distributed uh, vehicle charging infrastructure, which we know we're going to need in the future, um, folks who are in that business line in the transportation industry um, might be interested in potentially acquiring us as well. But uh, from from our perspective, we want to go public, be a really big company, and go public. So that's awesome. We'll see. It's it's also really great. I think as as you know, a theme we're saying this association with social impact. Oh, and it's not about, you know, profit or it's not about also growing. But to even take that further and say there's incredible exit strategies, obviously, in in that impact and in those philosophies. I mean, you know, exit strategy is certainly something that we think about at, at Cool House. And I think a lot of people get very finicky when you know start talking exit. Are people going to think I don't love doing this or are people going to think I'm, quote unquote, trying to sell out? And it shows you it, it's it's really, you know, can be totally the opposite. And also, I think it's really important that there's no way to separate the net positive impact that your company is trying to create from the company. Like if someone acquires you, you can't all of a sudden not be about reducing greenhouse gases. You know, I think that that's also a really important piece of the work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, you you guys you guys have built two really important businesses, right? Like Cool House and Ovenly. And the reason that you're doing it is because it's like, you're building a, ver- a version of the society that you want to live in, like in your business, right? And so, yeah, like if that gets bought and invested in and expanded or it goes public and it becomes really huge, like that's what we want. And it's good. It's going to be good for the other social entrepreneurs who come along behind us. That's that's totally. our take on it. So we go from one administration that very clearly cares about Greenhouse gas reduction, joins the Paris Climate Accord, uh, starts regulating business so that, you know, the generations that follow us can live. Uh, I don't know how to say it any other way. Now we have an administration that is, for all intents and purposes, doesn't seem to care and is rolling back regulation. 
Does it matter? Because it seems like from everything that you're saying, local governments, cities, states, they're going ahead with reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. They're going ahead with becoming uh, a greener world, whether or not it's in uh, the Bronx or in the whole state of New York. So what gives you hope right now? Like you being in the this world, what is giving you hope? Boy, um. I'm going to try to answer as a cool, collected uh, bu- business leader and not the hot-headed political organizer. And, and please, uh, some Greek me. mythology while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's raging to emerge. Um, the, I mean, like, WTF, right? Like, this is just pure craziness. WTF. <laughs> right. I mean, but, like, to your point, this context, this situation has forced leaders at the state and local level to really understand that, there's no messiah in the White House that's going to, like, fix everything with a magic wand and, like, I can kind of put it out of my mind because, like, Obama's going to fix it or Hillary's going to fix it, right? We as leaders at the local level, in states, in cities, at utility companies, like, now clearly understand that there will be no progress on climate in the U.S. if we don't drive it. And so we have 100% of the responsibility. And 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 that is a source of hope um, for me because folks really are stepping up to address this challenge. Now, they need help. They need capital. They need support. Um, they need structures like social and environmental impact bonds that allow them to partner with startups and kind of take on risks in a way that they otherwise cannot. Um, because of their own organizational or governmental structures, right? So they need a lot of help and support, but they really are stepping up to the challenge. Like, and as I travel city to city, I mean, Philadelphia committed a billion dollars to green itself. The city of Oakland is partnering with the utility company to put hundreds of millions of dollars to work to green Oakland. Um, LA is making huge strides or you know, coming up with new plans. Chicago, Atlanta, and Georgia, where I went to high school, um, Georgia's not known for its like pr- progressive credentials, right? But the city of Atlanta has passed legislation that it's going to be 100% renewable energy by 2035, right? And so you're starting to see these really aggressive responses from local leaders. And the question is, um, now that we have that opportunity and that hope, how do we not lose that by, by taking the time to make sure that the implementation um, of the opportunity that's being created at the city level, at the state level, and utility companies. Um, we, we need to make sure that it works. We need to make sure that we help the city of Atlanta achieve 100% renewable energy by 2035, or else the rest of the state of Georgia and the rest of the Southeast is going to say, ah, we told you so. There's no way to actually do it. And so um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity, and I think that people who you know are fighting for climate and are fighting for social and environmental justice, yes, we need to fight, but we also need to um, engage in robust and serious implementation of, of figuring out how we're going to build companies and nonprofits and organizations that can really build a new green economy and a fair economy. And, and, and how do we build that so that it works? That becomes the economy of the future. Okay, so that's great. That makes me gives me some hope. Uh, in the past few weeks, month or so, the UN has come out with a new report. Uh, and, yes. And it's pretty dire. And it seems like it, it's saying we have to work faster. So from your entrepreneurial perspective... What is it that we all can do, and for our listeners out there who are interested in this field, to make all this happen faster? 
The first thing you should do is invest in block power because we're going to do it. Awesome. Um, the second thing, um, I don't. Hmm, I, I'm not one to. Yes, we got to go protest. Um, yes, we got to turn the lights off when we leave the room. Um, all of that's really important, but we got to take that as a given, right? Like, um, we 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 just have to do those things. We got to move beyond that. So, there are existing technologies um, that you know we don't have to invent like a new, awesome, amazing thing that no one's ever heard of. There are existing technologies that can help us reduce U.S. greenhouse gases by like eleven percent in the next two to five years, and I think. We really need to be about the business of applying those technologies to our buildings and to our transportation sector um, and making sure that the leaders at the utility companies and the governments who absolutely uh, hold the keys to our future on climate, at least here in the U.S., um, we as a community and as a generation need to make sure that those utility leaders and government leaders are exposed to this new technology, that we're partnering with them um, to, to be able to experiment with the new technology in their territory, because that is what is going to allow us to use existing technology um, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and waste um, in America. So we have all of the answers that we need. It's literally about implementation. It's literally kind of getting in there with your local leaders to figure out what is it going to take for you to feel comfortable to install this new you know, energy efficiency technology in all of the schools or all of the buildings that the city of Miami controls. Okay, you want to see one year of performance of this new technology? Fine, like we'll put it into our churches and synagogues and test it out. We'll bring you the data. Now you should feel comfortable putting it in all of the schools across Miami. So I think figuring out what's um, the, the kind of help that our local um, leaders on the environment need in the government and in the utility companies. To me, um, that's that's a really important place to engage, and, and kind of nobody does it or talks about it, um, but it's incredibly important. Figuring out the help you can give, but figuring out what they're looking for also, which, you know, exactly. again, can apply across so many. I mean, that's that's consumer. You're looking for what's the void that, that we can fill with this, and how can we make it better? That's right. What's the why, not that's just right. the what? Can you give them some data? Yeah. Right. So... Um, we're at the point in our show, Donnell, where uh, we like to ask our guests to explain a skill that's been meaningful to them in growing their business and break it down for our audience. So hopefully they can, you know, implement that in, in their daily lives. So the the skill that has been the hardest for me to learn, and I, I haven't learned it yet, I'm still working on it, is an aspiration, but I, I see how important it is. Um, is Ben Horowitz, you know, my investor, his his concept of like the one management principle. And simply put, I'm trying not to butcher it, the idea is any critical decision that you're making as a leader in your organization is going to be viewed from multiple perspectives. And you need to take all of those perspectives into consideration at the time that you're making that decision. And so a quick example is, you know, I had an employee, 25-year-old, amazing employee, approach me and say, well, you know, I think I deserve a raise. And so the one, the one management concept says, okay, you know, maybe you deserve a raise, maybe you don't. But we as, a, as policy at Block Power do not negotiate individual raises um, at the request of our employees. Because if I negotiate an individual raise request with you, um, your colleague and peer is also a great employee, and they want to raise. And then someone else you know, hears about it. The, the first two employees got raises. Now I want to raise. And so um, 
now we're in the business of constantly negotiating raises with everyone who may or may not deserve it. And so the one concept rule says, well, you know, I believe that you may deserve a raise at this time, but we are going to negotiate that raise through a process that is transparent and open, and everyone is going to have the same opportunity that you have to request a raise at the same time, and we're going to be very transparent about um, the size of that raise and the merits and why you got it and who gets it and who doesn't. And um, we're just going to be like fair and thoughtful about the fact that if I give you a raise, I need to understand that everyone's going to want a raise, right? And so when you're making decisions in your organization, you have to understand that the decision is not just between you and the individual person that you're having the conversation with, but it's between you and the entire organization. Customers may hear about it. Uh, your investors may hear about it. And so as you're making decisions, you have to be, you know, thoughtful about all of the different stakeholders who may be impacted by that decision. And it's a really, really, really difficult concept to master. But um, in the few years that I've been running my company, I see that when, when, when you don't get it right, it really comes back to bite you in the butt. Um, and so it's a really, really important concept. And as a new dad, um, we have a three-year-old son. Congrats. Um, thank you. He's great. My wife and I are learning about you know, if you if you make a decision and we inform our son of the, the decision and, you know, he agrees or disagrees or whatever, like the level of consistency that's required in order to be an awesome parent to him that's consistent and, and trustworthy and stable, um, that same principle applies, right? Like there has to be a level of consistency and fairness and thoughtfulness about, well, if we do this now, if you ask me again next week, am I consistent in my answer? So, so you're, when your three-year-old wants a raise, you have to consider... <laughs> <laughs> All the implications. Um, so yeah, so the, it, it's been a tough skill to learn and to um, to think about and to master. Well, this has been so awesome, Danelle. Like this is such a great conversation. So different from the other conversations that we've had this season. We're really excited about it. Thank you for coming on the show today, and uh, we can't wait to follow your success. I am really delighted to have had the chance to join you guys, and congrats on your amazing businesses and amazing show. Thank you, Danelle. <laughs> I one last thing to add. Um, I'm a, a, a fairly new mom too, 18 months old. So I'm really glad that you're doing things that will help ensure for Remy to have a planet. That's <laughs> that's what it's all about, right? That's why we're doing it. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Start to Sale. We really want to hear what you're getting out of the conversations we're having with these wonderful entrepreneurs. And we want to know what you want more of. Are there entrepreneurs that you love that you want us to talk to? Is there a resource you need? Feel free to send us an email at hi at starttosale.co or direct message us on Instagram. I'm at Aaron Patinkin, and Natasha is at Natasha J. Case. We'd love to hear from you if you've been able to apply anything from Start to Sale episodes to your business. We'll be continuing the conversation on our website, starttosale.co, where you'll find resources and more. And of course, we'd love a review in whatever podcast app you use. Tell us what you think whenever you can spare the time. We'll talk to you soon. Now that we've wrapped another episode, it's a good time for our audience to drink a crisp, pure, vapor-distilled glass of water with electrolytes for taste. A big thank you to our founding sponsor of Start to Sale, Smart Water. Learn more at drinksmartwater.com.